Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Okay, I'm going to say one more time. This music is a clue. Nobody has figured out what it's a clue to yet. If you, just, if you can solve the mystery of the clue, you may win valuable prizes. Or you may fall into a black hole. Um, particularly in terms of today's show, I think the latter thing is more possible. Um, so we're talking to go, going to talk about gravity today. But before we get going with our guests, let me just say that one of the, one of the problems I have whenever I'm doing a show like this, where A, I don't really know what I'm talking about, and B, uh, there's a danger that I will never know what I'm talking about, which could be maybe all of the shows. I don't know. But I wind up doing a lot of reading. A lot of times the producer wants me to look at one thing and I wind up looking at other things. Um, so today, one of the things that I discovered was that in the 1940s, well, think about it this way. Gravity has been around forever, but me, all we ever did about it or with it for thousands of years here on Earth was just put up with it, right? Just live with it. Uh, <laughs> there weren't a lot of other alternatives. So in the 1940s, there was some kind of inkling, I think, that, you know, gravity was not long for this world, or at least being stuck with gravity was not long for this world. So on the one hand, you got something in uh, in New Hampshire, in New Boston, New Hampshire. There was this group called the Gravity Research Foundation, and it was funded by some billionaire named Babson, uh, and they really hated gravity. <laughs> they, thought, they thought gravity sucks. Now, as Marcus Chan, one of our guests, is going to tell you later, gravity doesn't suck. It blows, but we'll come to that. That'll give you something to look forward to. Uh, but they, like, they wanted to just do what they could to get rid of it. Uh, and they would do stuff like that at their meetings. They would sometimes, uh, this Gravity Research Foundation, they would sit with their uh, feet up in the air and their heads down low just to piss off gravity or something. Um, so, and then the other kind of anxiety, and this is going to come up uh, in our final segment, our third and final segment today. The other kind of anxiety people were having in the 1940s was, well, pretty soon people are going to go into space and there's not going to be any gravity. What's going to happen? I mean, what's, you know, they thought, well, could you swallow? I mean, could you? Um, well, what if your brain just kind of went crazy because there was no gravity in your brain anymore? I mean, there was just no way of knowing any of this stuff. So they started doing experiments to see if they could find out. But I mean, there was like a lot of worry about this. Like, it was going to be great to go up there. But there was no basis for knowing what the effect of gravity on a human being might be. Anyway, we're going to talk about that in the final segment. But uh, we got to get going here with some basic stuff about gravity and, of course, the history of understanding gravity. Um, and I said I wouldn't do this show unless Amanda Gefter would be on it. Uh, she's a physics and cosmology writer and the author of Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn, A Father, a Daughter, the Meaning of Nothing, and the Beginning of Everything. She's been on the show many times before. Uh, and if anybody can explain complicated things to me, it's Amanda Gefter. Joining us also is Marcus Chown, science writer, broadcaster, and former radio astronomer at the California Institute, Institute of Technology. He's the author of several books, including The Ascent of Gravity, The quest to understand the force that explains everything. Um, all right. So, Amanda, I'm going to start you off with the most basic kind of question. What the heck is gravity? I mean, people talk about it all the time, but is it a force? Is it a way that space-time is curved? Is, is it a field? I mean, what is gravity? 
I think um, the the crazy thing is that it's still a bit of an open question, but um, but yeah. So Newton thought of gravity as as a force um, that like distant masses kind of just magically across space um, exerted on each other and and, and pulled each other um, towards each other. And then it was it was Einstein who questioned this whole idea. Um, part of it was like for gravity gravity in a Newtonian universe, um, acts instantaneously across space. Um, it doesn't take any time for gravity to like travel because there's nothing to travel. It's just this force. And so, um, when Einstein realized, look, there's this fundamental speed limit to the universe, which is the speed of light. Nothing can go faster than that. Um, then gravity couldn't go faster than that either. And then that required like a whole rethinking of what we're even talking about when we talk about gravity. Um, and so that's where we get into general relativity. And, and now we have this idea that, um, that gravity is not a force at all, but it's actually the geometry of space itself. Um, uh, Marcus Chown, it acts like a force uh, a, an awful lot of the time. I, and I'm try I was trying to think of some ways that we could give listeners um, practical ideas or experiences or understandings of gravity. Um, one of them that I ran into that just fascinated me was this notion, notion of the Lagrange points. These are points in space where there's nothing to be seen. There's no visible thing. But somehow are there two gravitational, you should pardon the expression, forces have kind of teamed up to create a thing that's kind of stable? Do I have that even remotely correct? Yeah, I mean, hi, Amanda, by the way. Uh, hi, Marcus. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in any any system of two bodies, uh, there are these kind of uh, null points um, where the gravitational field and, and uh, the centripetal force, which is the, uh, or, or we can think of the centrifugal force, the, the, the force of the, uh, you know something moving in a circle, getting flung outward, where those two things balance. And in any system of two bodies, there are five of those points. They're called Lagrange points. So if we could imagine the gravitational field that Amanda's talking about as some kind of landscape, some hilly landscape, then there are five valleys where um, a third body, a satellite or something like that, could actually languish, you know, in, in relatively, re relatively stably. And we see this in the solar system. So, for instance, um, um, if we take Jupiter um, ahead of it in its orbit by 60 degrees and behind Jupiter by 60 degrees are the, what we call Trojan asteroids. And, and they're actually becalmed in this kind of Sargasso Sea of, of gravity. Those are two Lagrange points. And we, as, as um, you know, we, we put our, our space probes at these Lagrange points. I mean, the, the uh, COBE, which was, oh, WMAP, which was a, um, a microwave, a satellite which looked at the aftergo of the Big Bang. I think that was put at the Lagrange two point. Right. So they're like they're like point. they're like Marcus. They're like parking spaces, right? I mean, something exactly. can just sit there. Exactly. Although you have to be careful, right? Because if you wander too far out of your parking space, you can go right off into the sun. I assume. Absolutely. I mean, they're not. They're not. That's right. Um, you know, a slight nudge, and and you're. That's exactly what happens. You're right. Yeah, you get pushed pushed in, in, in into the sun. So that's um, not desirable. So, um, and, and so, Marcus, I want to ask one other practical thing. So I, this is something I've never given any thought to. And, and this, this makes gravity seem, I think, much more like an earthly force and, and less like this Einsteinian thing. So I read somewhere that on Mars, 
there's a mountain that's 2.7 times taller than Everest, and that has to do with the fact that Mars's gravity is less uh, than, than Earth gravity. I think it's Mars. Maybe it's the moon. I can't remember. But anyway, the, I, I don't think about gravity as a thing that decides how tall mountains get to be. But, but apparently it is? Well, actually, it isn't on Mars, because you would expect Mars, being about half the diameter of the Earth, to have much smaller mountains than the Earth. But it's to do with the fact that actually Mars has got a... Um, it, its interior is solidified, so it doesn't have, have a, a magma like we have. So the mountain you're talking about is, Olymp- is, is Olympus Mons, and you're absolutely right, it is much higher than Everest. Um, but it's very, very similar to um, the island of Hawaii. And at the island of, in the island of Hawaii, there's a hot spot, um, maybe of upwelling magma, comes up under the Pacific, and it's like a, a blowtorch. And it, and it kind of burns through and creates, well, we're seeing the, the, the eruption of Kilauea at the moment. Um, but, of course, because of the, the, the uh, interior of the Earth being molten, the, the plates on which Hawaii, uh, you know, are, are stands actually move across this blowtorch. So there isn't any opportunity for a, a very large mountain, to, to, a huge mountain to build up. But, of course, since it doesn't happen on, on Mars, you have the, the, the you know, the, the, in the past, the, the volcano has grown and grown and grown because there are no plates which can actually move over the blowtorch. Hmm. All right. So um, I, I think, uh, Amanda, that we think when we hear you talk about Einstein and, and notions of, of the, the shape uh, of the universe, we think about that, that like happening out in space somewhere, <laughs> somewhere other than here. We don't think about apples falling. We don't probably even think about David Scott, uh, the astronaut on Apollo 15, dropping a falcon feather and a hammer and watching them fall at the same rate, right? When we think about gravity, we think it's, oh, it's a thing that I can look at but somehow that has to connect to all this other stuff that's so hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, I mean, part of the thing is is you never see space, right? You just see objects, um, and then you sort of infer space from how objects are moving relative to each other. So the fact that we're kind of small, like cosmically speaking, and, um, you know, we feel like our feet down on the floor and uh, we see things fall, like we just sort of, it's easy to to think of gravity in this like force like way because you're just seeing its effect on objects. You're not like when when Einstein's talking about gravity, he's really imagining the space itself, like this this curvature, this geometry of the space. And so I think we just intuitively like don't think that way. So let's go back before Einstein, Marcus. Let's go back to Newton. Uh, Newton uh, is thinking about things in the 17th century. Uh, not insignificantly, apparently, uh, the plague is wreaking havoc uh, across the land. What does that have to do with Newton thinking about gravity? Well, Newton was a student at Cambridge University. Um, plague, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, was devastating London. I mean, it killed something like 100,000 people. So you can imagine in the 17th century, that was about a quarter of the population of London. Uh, So there was great fear that the plague was going to spread to Cambridge. So he left Cambridge and he went back to his family home, which was in Lincolnshire, uh, I think 50, 70 miles away, uh, to his family farm. And he was isolated there for 18 months. I mean, we call it his miraculous year, um, but it was actually about 18 months. And during that time, he came up with the, uh, the theory of universal gravity. 
he um, recognized or he discovered that the, the, the light from the sun is actually made of all the colors of the rainbow, you know, woven together. He, he invented calculus, the mathematics of calculus. So it really was quite a spectacular time for Newton. Um, and for some reason or other, he doesn't right away um, announce his uh, universal law of gravity, right? He waits like a really long time. Do we know why that is? We don't know why that was. You're absolutely right. It was a good, it was a good 20, 30, 25 years, something like that. You probably read my book yeah. <laughs> more recently than me. 22. But no, he didn't. He didn't. Um, I mean, that perhaps now scientists have to publish quickly uh, in case they get um, uh, scooped by somebody else. I mean, there wasn't that kind of pressure in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't, no. And it was, uh, it was only really on the prompting of Edmund Halley, who was nearest that, that uh, Newton had to a friend, that he, that he actually, um, you know, told him about his discovery because uh, um, it turned out that uh, Halley and Sir Christopher Wren, who, who was the architect of St Paul's Cathedral in London after the Great Fire, and Robert Hooke, who turned out to be uh, Newton's great rival, had been arguing in a coffee house in, in London about what would be the path taken by a body like a planet if it was under the influence of what they called an inverse square law of, of force, one that, that got weaker uh, tw- uh, four times as weak when the separation of bodies was doubled, got nine times as weak when it was tripled. What would be the path? And uh, because they were arguing over it, Halley then took the stagecoach from London to Cambridge because he knew that Newton would know the answer. And Newton said, yes, of course, it would be an ellipse. And he said, uh, and, and Halley was completely stunned. And, uh, and Newton said, I, I've calculated it. But then he searched for all of his papers in his, in his, uh, uh, in his office and couldn't find them um, and had to rederive everything. And that was the beginning of, of this great outpouring that became the Principia Mathematica, probably the greatest scientific book uh, uh, next to Darwin's The Origin of the Species, in which, which uh, Newton put, you know, basically presented his laws of motion and his law of universal gravity. So, uh, Amanda, 300 years go by, uh, and <laughs> things are working pretty well, as far as anybody can tell, gravity-wise. And then there's this patent clerk who goes, wait a second, there's something wrong here. Uh, I don't think anybody else thought there was anything wrong. Uh, so, so what is it that Einstein is saying? How is he, in some ways, bumping noggins with Newton? So Einstein, Einstein was actually reading um, Ernst Mach, the philosopher, and Mach really, really hated like Newton's conception of space um, because Newton basically like if you talk about something moving, you sort of have to say that it's moving relative to something because it doesn't make sense to talk about something just moving on its own. Right. Moving is like a changing relationship um, of objects. And so so if you have things that are like really moving, they must be moving relative to this sort of fixed absolute space. Um, and that's what Newton thought. And Mach hated this. And Einstein was really influenced by Mach. And Mach had basically said there shouldn't be this absolute space. Space should be like a relative notion. Motion should be a relative notion. And um, and we shouldn't have to introduce this invisible, unmeasurable thing that we're calling absolute space. And so um, so that's where Einstein was really coming from, was saying like, how do we make motion relative without without this this basement level kind of reality and 
And so he starts thinking about, well, okay, let's say you're on a train and the train's pulling away from the platform. And if your train is moving like really uniformly, really smoothly, it's actually really hard to tell whether you're train is moving or the platform sort of receding away. Um, And so this ends up sort of becoming special relativity and this idea that if you talk about things that are in uniform motion relative to each other, then you can't really say which one is actually moving. Um, And so you don't need absolute space there. But if your train sort of lurches as you as you move forward and it sort of throws you back in your seat, like you're feeling a force, then you can say, well, I know I'm really the one that's moving because the people standing on the platform are not, you know, being pushed back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel this force, so I must really be moving. And that means I must be moving relative to this absolute space. Um, and so Einstein, he, he called this the happiest thought of his life. He said, well, wait a minute. Actually, you can tell that you're feeling a force but you can't tell whether it's because you're really moving, you're you're accelerating, or you could be sitting still but feeling the force of gravity. Um, and that there's actually no experiment that you could do that would distinguish between those things. And so when he realizes this, he, he realizes, okay, this is a way of getting rid of this absolute space because we can just say, we still don't know who's the one that's really moving. There's there's a ambiguity there that allows everything to be relative. Uh, that was a more succinct and understandable explanation. We've tried many times on this show to explain these things. You did a really <laughs> good job just there. Hey, um, Marcus, I want to go back. I want to just hop through the wormhole for a second and go, go back to Newton, but also keep one of my uh, virtual particles uh, here in the relative present. So, in, in as I mentioned before, and you've written about too, uh, in uh, the Apollo 15 journey, uh, David Scott recreates the Galileo experiment. He he drops uh, on the moon where there's no air resistance. He drops uh, a, a falcon feather and a hammer, uh, and they both fall uh, pretty much the same way. Um, but what does that prove again? <laughs> Well, this is the critical insight that Einstein actually had that led him to his theory of gravity, uh, which supplanted Newton's, of which Newton's was an approximation. And and it just shows you the power of his genius, because, um, you know, many, many hundreds of years ago, I mean, apocryphally, um, Galileo dropped, um, you know, a heavy weight from the Leaning Tower of Pisa and a light weight, and they hit the ground at the same time. And that's the experiment that you just described that was repeated on the moon. Now, for hundreds of years, people have known that all bodies, no matter what their mass, fall at the same rate. But it was Einstein who realized why that happened. Okay, why would that happen? He imagined that, that, that you're in a rocket, which has got its windows black, blacked out, and it's accelerating at 1G, okay? So your feet would be actually pinned to the floor and you'd be able to walk around just like you're on the Earth. And if it wasn't vibrating, this rocket, and you couldn't see out, you might think that you're actually on a, cab- a cabin on, on the Earth, you know? So acceleration is the same as gravity. So now let's do this experiment. So you're actually... You know, you, you, you just leave, basically, you, you, you maybe have a hammer and a feather, and you hold them in front of you, and what actually happens is the floor 
of the rocket, which is accelerating up at 1G, comes up and meets the feather and the hammer at the same time. Mm. Okay? Now, from outside, we, we know that. We know that. We, we, would, uh, we would see that it's actually the floor of the rocket which is coming up to meet those two objects. But inside, with the windows blacked out, you would actually see the hammer and the feather fall and hit the ground at the same time. So Einstein's genius is to realize that that's the situation on the Earth. That is why objects, no matter what their mass, fall at the same rate. Because actually, we're accelerating, or the Earth is accelerating, and we don't notice it. Okay? Now, there's a, there's, there's a, lot, there's a lot more to it, because it turns out that that we don't know we're accelerating because, as Amanda was pointing out, space-time is actually warped and we can't experience it because it's a four-dimensional uh, thing and we're only three-dimensional beings. But what, what, what is actually happening is that the, the, the gravity, there is no gravity, there's gravitational force around the Earth. We're at the bottom of a valley of space-time and objects are actually falling down that, 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 that valley and gravity is is the uh, force, the upward force, that they think, you know, so you're, you're falling to the bottom of a valley of space-time, and the upward force on your feet is what you, what, you, uh, what you call gravity. But in fact, we're accelerating. So gravity and acceleration are the same thing. That was his great insight. Is that why you say gravity blows rather than sucks, or is that a totally different thing? Well, that's an interesting thing, because that's actually a, something we've known since 1998. It turns out, in Einstein's theory of, of gravity, his, his theory of what Amanda mentioned, the special theory of, in 1905, he generalized it to, to, to in 1915, it, was, it became a theory of gravity. In that theory, the source of gravity, or in Newton's theory, the source of gravity is mass. But in Einstein's theory, the source of gravity is energy. Okay, so the sound of your voice has energy. The, uh, you know, electrical energy, light energy has, uh, 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 is also a source of gravity. So energy is the source. But there's other, this other term, which is, called pre which is pressure. And this has no, in normal matter, it is, it is insignificant. Okay, but the possibility arises that there could be some material in the universe where this pressure term is important. And in 1998, we discovered that contrary to all expectations, the expansion of the universe is speeding up. So the galaxies, which are the building blocks of the universe, they're flying apart like bits of cosmic shrapnel in the aftermath of the Big Bang. They should be slowing down because the gravity between them should be like a web of elastic breaking them. But contrary to all expectations, they're actually speeding up. So we've postulated the existence of this stuff called dark energy, which is invisible and... Um, fills all of space, and it has repulsive gravity. Okay, and this repulsive gravity, we believe, comes from this pressure term in Einstein's theory of gravity. Now, to just pick up on what you actually said, two-thirds of the mass energy of the universe is tied up in this dark energy. So until 1998, we'd missed the major mass component of the universe. So that's a bit of a, bit of a, a striking result. So two th in two-thirds of, two of the stuff in the universe actually has repulsive gravity. So, yes, it, it blows. It doesn't suck. And on that beautiful <laughs> note, we're going to go take a break. Uh, Amanda's going to come back. We're going to thank Marcus Chown for all of his help. Uh, Amanda's going to help me even more. Uh, we're going to be joined by a theoretical physicist, and we're going to talk about Stephen Hawking.
We're back. Has your head exploded yet? Uh, if your head explodes, uh, call the main station's main switchboard. I think there's somebody set up to deal with that problem. Uh, we're talking about gravity. Uh, we're talking about it in very complicated ways. We're trying to make them simple enough so that I can understand them, uh, which I think probably should let everybody else in the door, too. Uh, so we've got Amanda Gefter with us. Wouldn't dream of trying this without her. Uh, physics and cosmology writer who's been on the show other times uh, and is the author of Trespassing on Einstein's Law, a father a daughter, the meaning of nothing, and the beginning of everything. Uh, now, now joining us as well is Sean Carroll, theoretical physicist at Caltech, also the author of several books, including The Big Picture, on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself. You can't do better than that. So, uh, Amanda, before we b- begin uh, bringing Sean Carroll into this, we're, we're going to take another turn, right, which is that um, so uh, Einstein improves on uh, Newton, uh, but the, Einstein doesn't get everything, right? There's a way in which subatomic particles uh, and Einstein's thinking about gravity don't get along all that well. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so we have two sort of main theories of reality, and one is is Einstein's general relativity, and that works really well in describing like big, massive things that where gravity uh, comes into play. And then we have quantum mechanics, which describes um, I mean, it's sort of misleading. People always say, oh, it describes small things. I mean, it it should describe everything. (laughs) Uh, Everything should be quantum mechanical, but it only becomes really obvious that things are quantum mechanical um, when you're dealing with really small things. And so so we have these two theories, but they actually contradict each other in a number of ways. And so, you know, we like to think, okay, there's one reality, so we should have one consistent theory that that sort of deals with everything. and there's kind of an interesting thing, like, so the physicist John Wheeler, um, who 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 literally wrote the book on gravity and and was um, he was the guy that coined terms like black hole and wormhole. And so he he looked at these sort of extreme examples of gravity. He saw that like Einstein's theory kind of like contains the seeds of its own destruction um, because gravity can sort of act on itself. Gravity is a form of energy. And like Marcus was saying, you know, gravity acts on energy so it can act on itself. And then you can get these sort of runaway situations like a black hole where space time is collapsing and it can actually like collapse itself right out of existence. So at the center of a black hole, that very idea of space time doesn't hold up anymore. And so so Wheeler sort of saw like, okay, well, if you look closely enough, um, gravity, it can't be like the most fundamental thing because it destroys itself. And, you know, at the center of black hole or at the beginning of time, like this idea of space time doesn't hold up. And so then you have to start talking about quantum mechanics. Um, and so you have to find a way to to talk about all of these things in, in one description of reality. And that would be a theory of, of quantum gravity. All right, so we're going to come to that. Um, Sean Carroll, uh, I apologize in advance for being the dopey kid in class. Uh, There's so many things that I'm struggling to understand here. And some of this may have been explained by Marcus Chown right at the end of uh, the previous segment. But as I was reading about this, one thing that I 
thought I understood that I was reading is that although gravity is a very weak force uh, out here in the world, you put a, a tiny refrigerator a magnet and it sticks to your refrigerator, it's not pulled down by the entire mass of the earth, um, that the smaller you get, the more subatomic you get, the more the, the, the force of gravity, the power of gravity uh, increases. It increases at an almost relentless rate. Um, and if that's true, it seems like everything should just turn into a black hole and reality should end. Right. But I don't think that's true. Okay. <laughs> I think it's not quite the way to think about it. I okay. think the more important, I mean, maybe what we're getting at here is if you want to understand why apples fall from trees or why the moon moves around the earth, Isaac Newton explained gravity perfectly well, mm-hmm. right? If you want to explain more extreme circumstances like the expansion of the universe or what happens inside a black hole, then you need Einstein's theory of relativity. And Einstein really was a different kind of theory when he had special and general relativity. It wasn't just that he invented some new equations for the force of gravity. He says that gravity shouldn't be thought of as a force living on top of space-time, like electromagnetism or a nuclear force. It's actually a manifestation of the features of space-time itself. The curvature of space-time and the dynamics of space-time give rise to what we think of as gravity. So when you look at space-time closely enough, I mean far closely on much smaller scales than we've ever been able to look at it in any experiment, but hypothetically, when you look at what happens at space-time on the very smallest scales, we don't even know what space-time is supposed to be. It's supposed to be dynamical. It's not static, and therefore quantum mechanics becomes very important, and we stop knowing what to say about what's happening when we talk about space-time at the very smallest scale. So I think uh, that brings us to Stephen Hawking um, uh, and some of the puzzles that he has left behind. Uh, Amanda, first of all, I should say at one point, I think you admitted to the fact that you <laughs> this is kind of hard to hard to hard thing to say, but that at one point you thought maybe you've underestimated Stephen Hawking. Yeah, I, I like I always thought he was he had to be like overrated because it was just like, you know, people sort of thought of him as this genius. And I just thought, well, you know, he speaks in a, a robot voice and it just makes it sound like he knows things that like no mortal humans could ever know. And so, you know, it was just like I just thought there's there's no way like his actual physics could be uh, proportionate to his his fame. But it turns out that I am really an idiot because that's not true at all so um uh, explain maybe sean you can begin by explaining what's the puzzle that hawking is giving us about this yeah by the way i completely agree with amanda i think that in the popular imagination it's very easy to overstate uh the genius of certain physicists who we happen to know very well because of their popular profile but Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking are two of them who deserve all the plaudits that they get uh, in the popular culture. And in particular, this idea of black holes giving off radiation because of quantum mechanics, that was Hawking's greatest gift to physics. You know, we say there's quantum mechanics and there's gravity and we don't know how to put them together, but it's not as if we know nothing. We know a lot about gravity, general relativity, and we know a lot about quantum mechanics. So even without full, final reconciliation of the two, we can draw some general conclusions, some features about how they should work together. And the single greatest step in that direction was given to us by Hawking, when he said that in the presence of quantum mechanics, black holes aren't completely black. They give off radiation. 
And so what we would like to do is understand the precise quantum mechanical process by which you start with no black hole, you make one by a star collapsing or something like that, and then the black hole evaporates away through these quantum mechanical particles that are coming out of it. That is something that we've been banging our head against for decades now. We don't really understand the full quantum transition from the beginning to the end there. Um, Amanda, once again, I'm blundering around here, hoping that I have something useful to contribute to this conversation. But uh, I, I know that you've explored in some of your writing the question about um, how this affects our notion of what is or isn't, quote, real, unquote. And it actually sends me back to a piece that I'm pretty sure that you wrote that I read years ago in which you quoted John Archibald Wheeler as saying, it may be that reality isn't made up of all that much of anything. Um, and that may not be connected to what we're about to talk about, but there's something that connects Hawking's ideas to some questions about how we define something as real. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, um, I should say this is getting like a little philosophical and, and not necessarily like something every physicist would agree with. But um, but yeah, I think in general, when we say something is real, what we mean is ev- like all observers will see it mm-hmm. in some way or another, right? Like if I see a pink elephant and I ask around and nobody else sees the elephant, then like we can probably conclude it's not real and I'm having some sort of like episode. Um, and, so, and so in physics, you can sort of say, well, you can take some pink elephant and say, what are all the transformations I can make? And how do I look at it in all these different reference frames? And what happens to it? Does it stay real or not? And, and what Hawking showed is that there are ways of talking about particles where different observers will disagree on whether they're there or not. And so when you talk about um, the black hole evaporating, you know, it it's, has these hot particles streaming off of it. And those particles are seen by an observer who's outside the black hole. But if you're falling into the black hole and you go right through the space where these particles supposedly are, you won't see any particles at all. Um, and so, so basically what happens is like when you have these um, event horizons, these places where, where gravity is, is so strong that light can't get out, um, like the horizon around a black hole, you start to you start to have a situation where different observers have radically different descriptions of reality and things like particles sort of get lost in the mix where we know, I mean, you think particles must be the most real thing we have because everything's made of them. Um, So the idea that one observer could say, yes, there's a particle there and another could say, no, that's just empty space um, was sort of the mind blowing thing for me about, about Hawking's work. Um, uh, this may not uh, further explain it, but uh, Sean Carroll, maybe we should do, uh, you should do the the black hole lost uh, information uh, puzzle thought experiment that, that Hawking sets up uh, involving throwing a book into a black hole. Right. I mean, this is a thought experiment that is definitely a thought kind of experiment. This is one. <laughs> don't try do. this. Don't try this at home. Yeah. Well, don't even, don't even think you could. Uh, the first part you can do, the first part of the experiment says, take a book and throw it into your fireplace or a bonfire and just let it burn to pieces, okay? And if you are really, really good at collecting everything that the book turns into, so every photon of radiation emitted from the fire and all of the ash and dust in the air that was heated up, in principle, the laws of physics, hey, but you could reconstruct what was inside the book. Mm -hmm. Now, in practice, you can't do that. But in principle, you should be able to. 
And so this is a sort of bedrock feature of physics, that the information that was contained in the book isn't truly lost when it gets burned in that fire. But Hawking says if you throw it into a black hole, apparently, to the best of our knowledge, when the black hole evaporates away, it evaporates away in exactly the same way, no matter what kind of book you threw into it. So the information appears to be lost. And many, many physicists believe that that's actually not the final correct answer. It's just because we don't understand quantum gravity yet, and this is a, a huge clue to how to figure out quantum gravity. Namely, when you figure it out, you better figure out how the information can come out of black hole. <laughs> All right. Well, we might have to stop there, although I'm maybe more confused rather than less confused. But uh, <laughs> thanks very much to Sean Carroll and, of course, to the indispensable uh, Amanda Gafter. We're going to take a quick break here. Uh, we've got another thing we're going to tell you about. This will probably be something that's a little easier for you to wrap your brains around. Uh, this is about the question of what happens when you send people out into space and they exist for a long time at zero gravity or very low gravity. What happens to their bodies and their brains? could be worse than you think. Gravity. Stay the hell away from me. Einstein, Hawking, why is Sandra Bullock being given no credit on this show? Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish floats, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Ed Harris. On tomorrow's show, Jill Sobule visits our studio to play music and cause trouble. And now, back to Colin. So remember at the beginning of the show, <laughs> those of you who are still tuned in, remember at the beginning of the show, I said that um, starting like, it was really like the late 1940s, I think, people started to understand that we were going to have people go into places where there was no gravity, right? There was going to be, people were going to go into space and start worrying about that too because there was just no way to know what that was going to do to anybody. Like, you know, was peristalsis going to work? I mean, in other words, were people going to be able to swallow their food and digest it at zero gravity? In fact, there's still this thing. I don't know whether it's 100% true or not. There's still this thing that you can't take birds into outer space because they really do require gravity to swallow. But anyway, nobody had any idea what would happen to anybody. I mean, what, what would happen to your brain if you just went up into space and there was no gravity? For all they knew, you would just instantly go crazy because nobody really exactly understood what it meant to have a brain experience zero gravity. So they started trying to study it. And there are ways to try to study stuff like that. Interestingly, if we'd had more time with the physicists, I would have asked about this. But one of the things that they can do is called parabolic flying, where a plane goes up very steeply and then down very steeply very fast. It's like a regular airplane you can do this with. In fact, the anti-gravity scenes, the low zero gravity scenes, excuse me, zero gravity scenes in Apollo 13 were created that way through parabolic flying uh, without going into space. So there's, you can do stuff like that and then you could put a rhesus monkey on a rocket and shoot, shoot it up there, which they also did. Um, but, you know, they really, nobody really knew. Well, now we know much more. Obviously, we've had people uh, in outer space. Uh, we've had people on space stations, uh, including Scott Kelly, who was on this show not too long ago, uh, for the longest time of anybody uh, on uh, the International Space Station. Um, and we're starting to get some information about what it's like, what happens to people, what happens to their brains in particular when they're at zero gravity. 
And obviously, as we move ahead towards longer kinds of explanation uh, of exploration, trying to go to Mars, stuff like that, people are going to be at zero gravity even longer. Uh, so Donna Robert, Dr. Donna Roberts is joining us now, associate professor in the Department of Radiology and Radiological Science at the Medical University of South Carolina. As I say, it's really important to know what's going to happen to the brain at microgravity. Uh, and uh, so she's been trying to find that out. So um, first of all, Dr. Roberts, maybe you want to say a little bit more about why NASA and, and people connected to NASA want to know about stuff like this. Yeah, thanks for having me, and um, thanks for that introduction. Um, it's like you said, back in the beginning of space, human spaceflight, we had no idea what would happen to the body, and amazingly, we did really well. People were very surprised at that. Um, but over time, people started to develop problems, like problems with their bones, bone loss, muscle loss, uh, cardiovascular problems, problems with their vestibular system, which has to do with uh, orientation in space. So NASA spent a lot of time trying to study study those problems, but there wasn't that much uh, concern about what was happening to the brain because it didn't really seem to, to cause any major problem for the astronauts. They had some trouble with sleeping, some reported headaches, but it was only recently that astronauts who uh, spent long times on the International Space Station started coming back with complaints of changes in their vision and as a matter of fact, approximately 60% of the astronauts on long-duration missions actually experience um, problems with their visual acuity. And, um, and so NASA started diagnosing astronauts with visual problems, and they looked in the back of their eye, and they saw changes to the back of their eye. And they also did this other study where they measure the pressure around the brain, and they found that in the most severely affected astronauts, there was an increase in pressure around the brain. So uh, people started to become concerned about this and wanted to understand better what was happening in these long-duration uh, spaceflight astronauts. So one of the things uh, that your team did was uh, study the brains of participants who stayed in bed for 90 days uh, with their heads kept in a continuous, this sounds like a, a hard experiment to be a part of, continuously tilted in a downward position to simulate the uh, effects of microgravity. And you also checked brain scans from 18 astronauts who'd spent a few weeks aboard the space shuttle. What did you learn? Yeah, so uh, our initial study was done in in subjects who were in bed for long periods of time, they were in bed for up to 90 days, and they had to keep their head down the whole time. They were being watched to make sure they kept their head down. When they took a shower, they were rolled through an overhead shower, so literally they kept their heads down the whole time. And we did brain scans of them before and after, and we saw changes in their brain structure. And so we started hypothesizing that it could potentially be happening to astronauts, too. And so then we had the opportunity to do brain scans of two groups of astronauts, some astronauts who had been on the space shuttle, who these are relatively short-duration missions, they're only about two weeks. And then we compared those to the brain scans of astronauts who had been on the space station, and, and those were up to three months long, so they're, they're much longer period of time. And we saw much more striking changes in the astronauts who had been on the space the space station than the astronauts who had only been on the shuttle for short periods of time. And, and unfortunately, the parts of the brain that seem to be affected are ones that have to do with decision-making and focus. Um, do I have that right? 
Yeah, so what we saw was that there was actually shift of the brain structure upwards inside the skull and that some of the important brain structures at the top of the brain were being slightly compressed. And the interesting part of it is the longer that they were in space, the worse uh, the changes became. And the areas that were affected, like you said, were important parts of the brain, like the frontal lobe, which has to do with executive function and also has to do with controlling movement of the body. And just behind that, the parietal lobe, which is the part of the brain that has to do with sensing where the body is in space. Um, So um, do you have a sense yet of how long, well, let's compare it to NFL football players, all right? So um, uh, the the scientist who's done the most um, uh, comprehensive research on this, uh, uh, there's a bunch of them, they're starting to say, you know what, it's probably, you know, even like if you're playing Pop Warner football or when you're a kid or you're playing junior high, high school football, those kinds of kind of micro jolts to the brain, they, they really do start to have, have an effect maybe even as early as that. So I don't know if that's a good analogy to, like, should I get on an Elon Musk uh, spaceship and, and go for a quick trip up and, and then back down. Uh, in other words, is, is this sort of a thing where you have to be up there for weeks or should you probably not even get on the, the SpaceX flight um, for a very short duration? Well, we saw like mild changes in the shuttle astronauts who were only up for two weeks, but the more dramatic changes occurred in the space station astronauts who had been up the longest. And, it, and the changes were um, correlated with mission links. So the longer they were, the worse it got. And we never really saw a plateau. So we don't know what happens after approximately three months. And so we're continuing our studies. And uh, as you know, you uh, spoke with Scott Kelly, astronauts are staying longer in space. And so we're starting to study what's happening to those astronauts as well. And I think that'll be able to, we'll be able to answer that better. But an interesting thing to keep in mind is that If you plan a mission to Mars, it's going to take about three to six months at best to get there, but you have to then stay on the planet because you can only uh, travel between Mars and Earth when the planets are aligned favorably. So you'll be on the planet for about two years, and on Mars, gravity is only about a third of Earth, so we don't know if that's enough to reverse these changes or not. So we're talking about a journey to Mars would be a long time in a reduced gravity environment. So if this were like an Andy Weir uh, science fiction novel, one of two things would then happen. Either all the astronauts on these long journeys would be taking the Donna Roberts pill, uh, which has been developed uh, to counteract these effects, or there'd be the Donna Roberts artificial gravity machine, right? I mean, you get sort of two choices. Either you treat the person or you treat the environment that doesn't currently have any gravity in it. Exactly. And so one of the things... That countermeasure. So NASA's done really well at developing countermeasures. So we talked a little bit earlier about bone and muscle loss, and so uh, astronauts spend multiple times um, each week exercising um, to keep their muscles and bones strong and their cardiovascular health. Um, But these type of countermeasures won't be useful for the changes that we're seeing in the brain structure. And so artificial gravity certainly is an appealing countermeasure from the standpoint of the physiology that we're seeing. But at the same time, it might um, cause some difficulty in the design of the spacecraft. They become more complex. And so that's why I think it's important for us as scientists to be working with the 
NASA and the private industry to um, figure out ways to effectively develop these type of countermeasures. Right. Absolutely. Um, We're going to have to stop there. Uh, This has been great. Uh, Good luck on that. I'm probably not planning to go into space anytime in my lifetime, but I know a lot of people are. So Donna Roberts, your work is very important. Let me tell you one last thing about gravity. Can I do that? Can I say one last thing about gravity in space? I forget to say this at the beginning. Okay. So when you want to pee, like today when you want to pee, gravity is basically telling you that you need to pee. Uh, it's it's create gravity creates the sensation or contributes to the creation of the sensation that you need to pee uh, and you pee I think your bladder is about a third full when when, it, when you start thinking you need to pee so the astronauts they don't experience that sensation they don't have any gravity so they don't know that they need to pee and their bladders can get really quite full before they know that they need to pee um, so there's actually somebody at NASA somebody at the Johnson Space. <laughs> Center, whose job it is. It's, you, know, you know how your mom used to say before you'd get in, like, at the rest stop, you know, on the highway? She'd go, no, everybody pee. Everybody go in there and pee right now. I don't care whether you think you need to or not. You go in there because we're not stopping again for another three hours. There's the NASA equivalent of that person who every couple of hours tells the astronauts, okay, pee right now. Well, I don't care. I don't care if you don't want to. Just do it. Uh, I, I, don't, I know you don't think you need to, but you do because there's no gravity up here and you have no idea how full your bladder is. So on that lovely thought, uh, have a wonderful day. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>